Awesome. So I am really excited because we're starting a new series. Um, it's a it's a it's a book series on the letter of James, and that's uh, towards the end of your Bibles. And uh, we're going to pick up in James chapter one in a moment. But just to say from Cindy and I, thank you so much for your prayers over these last several weeks. We can feel it. For those of you who guests uh, with us and, and don't know, uh, there's another church that uh, would like to extend a call to us, but they've got a process they have to go through and their members still have to vote. And that's next week, so don't ask me until after you know next Sunday evening or something like that, because uh, I don't know what their answer will be. Um, and uh, I have met one or two ex-PBC people who said, you're leaving! Um, so, <clears throat> uh, not quite sure how to read that. Um, but we... <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I'm quite relaxed. Don't worry. We really feel your love and care, and probably even more precious, we feel the Lord's love and care. And it's like we're walking this road, and we come over a hill, and there's a crossroads. And you just gotta, you got to stop until you know which way to go. It looks like there are two paths, but there might be a third. And uh, so I'm, I'm staring at these things, and, and they're two fairly well-trodden ones and maybe one that uh, hasn't been walked before. Um, and so thank you for uh, your prayers and that, you know, the Lord reveal his will. And several of you have already told the Lord what you think his will should be. Um, and you've also told me that. So uh, <laughs> we're grateful for your love. I, I mean that. I just and and I just want to put it out there because I mean we got nothing to hide, and, and you're you're so kind to us, and so we just appreciate you, and especially your prayer. So to the book of James. There's two dual themes before we kick in. And the first is that we want to be complete or whole, or the word sometimes is mature, or having integrity in every way. And it comes from the same word Jesus spoke on the cross, tetelestai, which was in its perfect form, meaning it's completely and fully perfect and complete. And it's just this idea of teleos. And interestingly, and, and you must understand, James is very Jewish in his thinking, very integrated and holistic. He uses the word seven times in the book. So you must know it's a big deal. Uh, and it's, it's rooted in the Hebrew idea of being whole, which is not shalom, but a word called tamim. Tamim conveys this Hebrew ideal of wholeheartedness. So Tamim was when Moses was telling people to worship the Lord with all their heart and to serve him. It was that, that fullness of your heart, your affection, and the singleness of your mind being resolutely and determinedly single-focused is part of this idea of Tamim, which results in us becoming blameless and complete because your blamelessness in the Hebrew world is not your ability in uh, contrary to the Pharisees of keeping all the rules 
but of loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and loving your neighbor like yourself. And so it's the opposite of this half-hearted slapgeit, you know. Um, if you're not from South Africa, you can ask someone what that means. Uh, it's the opposite of being slack. And it's the opposite of lazy, double-minded thinking. It's like ruthlessly gathering your thoughts around a single great purpose rather than having all these contradictory things that pull you in all the directions. And Moses has to deal with hard hearts and stiff necks, and which is the opposite of being tamim. And then another great theme that will be inside this book is based on its very Jewishness, is that we do Torah. Torah is the, is the idea of Scripture and the law. And this is the law. It's described as the perfect law that gives freedom, James 3 verse 12. And you find that freedom by being wholehearted. And uh, I'll never forget doing a year and a half sermon series on Romans chapter 8. I'm not going to make you guys do that. Just one chapter, preach it for a year and a half, trying, because I only learn by telling other people, so trying to understand what it means to love God with all your heart. And, and, and so we went through it. And as we were going through the series, actually the staff were chatting to me and suddenly I, 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 I said something and I realized the Lord is in this. So I chased them out the room because I needed to be alone. Because <laughs> in the middle of devotions, I said, leave now. <laughs> I've never done it since. Uh, and, and I don't think I've done it before. And I quickly wrote this prayer. Lord, teach me the freedom of devotion the power of simplicity, the peace of an undivided heart, and the joy of wanting only one thing. And in that prayer, you're bringing together these Old Testament and New Testament ideas. There's such peace in devotion. There's such power in surrender. So James says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So James is actually the brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and he is a very Jewish Jesus follower. He has been schooled in Israel, as it were, and, and unlike the Apostle Paul, he doesn't have the influence of Tarsus, and unlike Luke, he doesn't have the influence of Luke's unknown Greek sources and that kind of thing. He's one of the most Jewish of the Jewish writers, and he probably was writing very early in the church's expansion. I mean, the church has scattered, the church has spread, and he is a preacher of wisdom in the very Jewish tradition, but his preaching of wisdom is rooted in the kingdom teachings and the wisdom sayings of Jesus. So there's hardly a sentence in this letter that you can't cross-reference directly with something Jesus taught or said. And very importantly, he's not writing in opposition to the Apostle Paul, and nor was Paul writing in opposition to him. 
he assumes that those who will hear his letter, because his letter is written almost like a sermon, um, and it's written for public reading. He assumes that those who hear his letter when it's being read publicly are already also following Jesus in faith with him. Now, remember, it's an early. Uh, it was written quite early, meaning not many decades after Jesus ascended to heaven. So there are two, there are two lines uh, in this introduction like literally in the greeting, that give us some huge theological ideas about Jesus that he just assumes. Like he is not like Paul dealing with a bunch of people who he's going to try and like frame and argue for Christ. Or he's not, you know, Paul preaching. He assumes some things. The first is, and our translation does not capture an ambiguity in the original Greek. And by the way, this is written in very good Greek. In other words, any ambiguity is not accidental. The, the, the writer knew what his language was doing. And so although we read James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, an original reader would have been able to easily see James, a servant of Jesus the Christ, who is God and Lord. That's a much bigger statement, and it's completely gr grammatically accurate and ambiguously correct alongside the other one. A servant of Jesus the Christ, who is God and Lord. And his message, although to the 12 tribes, is not just to Jewish Christians. Why? Because the Jews were only two and a half tribes. Remember Israel, you know, 700 years had broken off and disappeared and been assimilated into the nations. And so the Jews were always a missing people in a sense, with a diaspora of those who were also part of the people of God, who were no longer evidently part of the people of God. So when a very Jewish man, you know, from the tribe of David, then says to the 12 tribes, he's not just talking to the Jews. He's speaking to the universal people who descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are part of the sum total of the people of God who have now through those who call Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, both Christ and God, have been in, in brought back into the people of God. This is massive eschatological language, but I won't fuss you with that. Okay, behave. Now jump quickly to verse 18. Okay, oh, I didn't put it here. Uh, let me find it for you. He, God, our Father, our very good Father, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Wow. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He, he chose to give us birth that we, uh, through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So we have been birthed. We've been brought to life. This new people, the 12 tribes. This completed, restored people of God, by our Father's initiative, his choice, through the word of truth. Now, this is powerful because Jesus is seen as the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus uses the word, I am the telos of Scripture. To be the first fruits of creation, the whole world will experience new life through us. Don't tell me there's this huge chasm between James and Paul. They, they are singing from the same song sheet 
in Romans 8 and in James 1 verse 1. So, message this morning, because, I mean, this is just, James chapter 1 verse 1 to 18 is so packed, so dense. I just want to show you how these themes weave together, and then we're going to invite God to come. He's here already. James knows knowledge may map the individual parts, and there's lots of individual parts in James chapter 1. But wisdom knows how to bring them all together. Wisdom knows how to bring them all together. So consider it pure joy, verse 2, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Can I have an amen? Yeah, I, I twisted your arms. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops stickability, perseverance. So let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be teleos, mature, complete, not lacking anything. So one of the things he starts off with is he assumes that they're facing tough times. They are facing all kinds of stuff. And the, and the language is like it's, you're literally falling into it. You're just walking and it happens to you. No one's to blame, whatever. It's stuff that's coming at you. And these early believers, and there's a very important construction, uh, uh, historical awareness, they are facing opposition, persecution. Later in the thing, we'll see they're being taken to court. They're being oppressed by worldly people with money and power. Now, what's very important here is that the, the, he's, he's writing to Christians across the known world from Jerusalem, most likely. He, that was where he was the lead elder. And and, and these people, especially in those early years, they were not the rich and wealthy. Now, you pick up a commentary today, and most of it's written as if you live in suburban America, and most of it assumes that the people who, who read it originally live in suburban America. And then you go and you look at, you, you know, how you should feed the widow and the orphans and, and how you shouldn't do, you know, be mean to people of low position who come to church and all that kind of stuff. Now, by the time you get to like 90 AD, there are some middle-class Christians living in a place called Laodicea, and God threatens to spit them out of his mouth. But these early Christians read the book of Acts. I mean, many they were slave girls and Roman jailers. And yes, there were people who were like traders and, and people who had resources. But overwhelmingly, we know from the history uh, of the time that the early church was largely made up of vulnerable people. It was made up of slaves, not ex-slaves. They were still slaves. That's why they had to be coached in how to relate to their masters. Yes, it had some masters in who were being taught how to relate to those same slaves. It had, like in, in Philippi, the church had a, a girl who had been set free from a demon, but she clearly probably still had a prophetic gift. Now, as a slave, she would not have been allowed to, to cover her head because in, in, in that would have said that she has spoken for and that she has a covering over her sex and sexuality. Not all women wore head coverings, not like Saudi Arabia. Head covering was a privilege to say that you are covered and, and that you're protected and that you're not sexually available 
at the right price. But in Rome, you could buy and sell anything if you were willing to pay the right price unless she had a head covering on. That's why they had to prophesy with head covering so they didn't send sexual messages in church and how they could honor and dignify the lowliest slave who populated churches everywhere across the Christian empire, well, across the Christian world in the, inside the Roman Empire. Christians were easy targets. Jerusalem itself was hit by famine and food shortage. Yes, there were some wealthy people, and they'll get a special mention at the beginning of chapter 5. But overwhelmingly, this book is written to people who are suffering trials and hardships of every imaginable kind. In our language, it wasn't written to Pinance as much as we'd like to think so. It was probably more written to Kailicha. Now, it will speak to us, believe me. But we must not do a historical reconstruction. It's called Disney theology, where we keep making ourselves the hero of the story. No, he's writing to very vulnerable people. Tempted, even in their poverty and powerlessness, to defer to the wealthy and look to them to meet their needs instead of look to the Lord himself and to see themselves differently. You see, life can just be hard. And he says, consider it pure joy. You know, recognized as did Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And without gratitude and joy, we become weak and we give up. So joy gives you that ability to stay with it. You think, I'll be happy if I stay with it. No, (laughs) be happy and you'll stick it out. And this enables us, when we learn this kind of stableness, to become mature, complete, and whole. And our Father so wants to do this for us because he's the God who enables us to hold it all together. So verse 5, if you lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, like some of you can read and most of you can't, some of you can earn, most of you can't, And some of you are thought of wise and foolish, but most of you aren't. That's the description of the early church. But if any of you lacks wisdom, the thing most prized, ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, You must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. They are not tamim. Now, the doubt he's talking about here when you're asking God, especially for wisdom, is not the feelings of uncertainty we experience when we step out into ministry. I've got a great testimony. It's on my phone. It's too long to read. But a couple of weeks ago, we were at Chad and Candace's wedding, and I preached at the church the next day. And um, the elder man, one of the elders managed to convince his mom to come to church, and she hadn't been to church for nearly five years because she had had surgery previously. And i just got to get this right. And, and she developed a severe, acute, phantom neural pain. So she, she would just hurt, but they couldn't find the source of it. She had this 
and, and it was very debilitating. But she came to church for the first time in years, sat in the, near the front row. She was wrapped in a little blanket, and she was just trying to, and it, and it came in episodes. So it would like hit her, and then, but it, it, it was very debilitating several times a day. And, and, and I was asked to pray with her after church because I was preaching on finding faith to begin again. Now, five years she's been trusting God. Five years. You can, after a while, you want to just pack it in, don't you? And she, she invited prayer, and I was able to pray with her. And she felt the presence of God and the peace of God. And in those moments, she could feel the pain wasn't there. But, of course, it's episodic, so she could only just assure me, thank you. Um, and then I got a message to say that she has literally not had a day's pain, a moment's pain in the weeks since then. Thank you, Lord. And, 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 and the elder wrote and said, and we've got our mother back. She's laughing again. She's smiling again. She's doing stuff for herself again. She's not wrapped up in a cocoon of a blanket, hoping to make it to the end of her life. She has been made whole. Because, now, now I've got to be honest. I prayed with faith, but I didn't have guarantees. The certainty we're talking about here is not that you have a guarantee that she will be healed. It's that you have a guarantee that God has loved her, made her, died for her, and, and is at work in her life, and that you refuse to give up what we will see towards the end, that God is good, that God, God hears us when we pray, and that he's involved in every step of the way. It's that big picture doubt. Not, not that I can dismiss all sense of uncertainty, like in the language of Peter, when I step out the boat to walk on water. Like, of course you're going to feel like, I must be nuts. I must be crazy. But God, that's not the doubt he's talking about. He's talking about questioning the character and the promises of God himself. Does that help you? Because this is not a false guilt thing that he's putting on us here. He's just telling us how generous and loving God is. He gives generously to all. Like you can trust the nature of God. Don't doubt it. His goodness, his kindness, his willingness, his care for the needy, the vulnerable, his generosity, his unchanging character. He gives good things and he only gives good things. Cindy and I have been able to lean into the character of God in the uncertainty of this time. Not because we know the future. We don't. But because we know him. Trust him. And this kind of faith is like a muscle. You put it to work and it grows stronger. And at time, uh, over time, it literally moves more. Like, you know, at first your muscle can move this much. But if you put it to work and it grows stronger, it literally moves more. It overcomes more. And your faith can do that. And so things that would have, you know, rattled you as you grow in God and become mature and complete, they just, like, whatever, you know, try another one. Not from an arrogant point of view. You've just learned to lift a heavier load with your faith. But be careful. Faith is like a muscle. For it to become weak, you don't have to chop it in half. You just stop using it. 
How many of you need to hear that again? For your faith to become weak, you don't have to cut it in half. You don't have to renounce it. You just have to stop using it. I think for some of us, as we re-engage, we've got to go, I need to rebuild some muscle. So start thinking about all the good things you can rejoice in and the nature of the God that we believe in. I've got to move it. I'm doing 18 verses today. You'd never heard me do that before. Verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. Remember who he's writing to. He wants them to see themselves differently. But there are also, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass like a wild flower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Jesus changes the way we see people, including ourselves. Remember who he's writing to. There are some wealthy people there. And they, they have an extra additional responsibility. But overwhelmingly, he wants the humble to take pride now in their exalted position in Christ. Nobody is outside of the plan and love and purpose and dignity of God of being an image bearer and a kingdom bringer in the name of God through Jesus Christ. Nobody. Jesus never met a person on whom he did not see the fullness of all the promises of Scripture being fulfilled for them through him. Never met anyone. Never saw anyone through anything but the lenses that believe the fullness of all the promises of God for that person. And if you think you're down on the ground, literally the word for the lowly people, you're in the dirt. And if that feels like to be you, you've got to learn to see yourself through the eyes of Jesus. He says you have an exalted position. But if this world has exalted you, flip the thing. Well, we're not going to follow its narrative of celebrity and power. Just understand that all the power that you have in this life, oh, it's just on loan, and it's like a little bloom in the garden, and it can disappear in a moment. You see, the way of the servants of Jesus is to challenge the stereotypes of rich and poor. And the typical behaviors that those stereotypes engender, including the fact, as we'll see in chapter 2, that when you're poor and someone drives in with a Mercedes and it's all fancy, you're tempted to treat them differently from the person who's just like you. So wisdom. And this is going to be, by the way, this issue of how we treat others. And their exaltation or humiliation. It's going to be the primary area of application for James of what it means to follow Jesus on the earth and fulfill Torah. 
So there's all these amazing ideas of completeness, wisdom, wholeheartedness, doing Torah, being the people of God in his purposes in creation. But all of those are going to land in how we treat others. That's, they have other ramifications, but his letter is reminding people, this is how you do it. And so those themes are glorious, but the application is going to come into this. No wonder we're in the introduction. So yes, having very little is a trial. It can be very, very challenging. But so, so too can having, be having much. It can tell you a lot about where your faith lies. Can our deep trust in God survive our self-sufficiency and pride? That may be a far greater test and a far bigger trial. So verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. So turn to the person behind you and say, God will never, ever tempt you to sin. Person behind you. Now you can turn to the person in front of, in front of you and say, now this is really hard, theologically complex. I know it. You might have to listen carefully. God is good. The devil is bad. Tell them. I'm not sure they got it. Tell them again. Only the devil will tempt you to sin. <laughs> like, now he's going to look for something inside of you, namely your desires, that he's going to want to put a hook on. But there's this crazy theology that somehow thinks that God is so sovereign, they just don't understand the idea of kingdom, that even sin is his active purpose. It's not. God's purposes include a world where sin is possible. But sin is never the active position of God. Why would God want to help you overcome temptation? So we read in Genesis chapter 4, Cain is angry and mad and he's depressed and his face is downcast because he is grumpy with Abel, his brother. Because Abel couldn't and Cain couldn't. Um, I'll let you work that out. He was Abel. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door of your life. It desires to have you or to rule you, but you must rule over it. It's the same words from Genesis 1. The command that is given to us to rule and exercise dominion over creation God says you have to do that same thing over sin and temptation. You must exercise dominion over that which wants to rule and govern you. It's kingdom ideas. Who is going to be in charge? And the interesting thing is when we're in the kingdom of God, God wants us to exercise dominion over ourselves. And he gives us his spirit to achieve that. 
Now, when he does that, when, when we, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, self-dominion, self-governance. And God is glorified when that happens. So the enemy has a strategy. Evil has a strategy to get inside us and rule us. But remember, if we can't govern ourselves, how are we going to govern creation? So in Luke 22, Jesus praying in the garden as he is preparing for one of the greatest temptations he is facing in verse 40. And reaching the place, he says to his disciples, now listen to this, there's a subtle difference here. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. What does he mean? The actual content of your prayer is lead us not into temptation. Verse 46, he says this, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. There's a difference in meaning. One is we are to pray like in the second last line of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. But we are also to pray so that we don't fall into temptation. In other words, we one describes the actual content of what, we, or what the disciples were supposed to pray in that moment. The other describes why we, one of the reasons we pray. As we enjoy communion with the Lord, as we worship him, as we listen to him, ask of him, declare our trust in him, lament to him, confess to him, thank him, and fill, allow him to fill our emotions and our minds, our diaries and our bodies, because you can't pray without some diary impact, with the consciousness of him, when we are filled with abiding in him, connecting to him, loving and worshiping him, we will not fall into temptation. So you pray, lead us not into temptation, but you also pray, your kingdom come, I love you. <laughs> and you pray all the wonderful full spectrum of prayer, so that by the time temptation wants to come, your heart is full and your mind is set. And you are Tom M. We overcome evil best by letting our hearts and minds be captivated, filled, and defined by the one who is truly good. And this is why we rejoice in trials and why we can confidently have peace when asking for wisdom, because we are convinced of his complete perfection and faithful goodness and utter generosity, which is where it's going. We already heard of generosity earlier, but now he's going to really bring it home what's your picture of god don't be deceived my dear brothers and sisters verse 16 every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows and then that great verse that wraps up the introduction he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be the kind of first fruits of all he created Understand this, God is unchangeably good. God is like a sun that never sets. Like his goodness is like the midday sun. It never moves, it never shifts. The shadow does not even drift so that you have to run and out of, you know, find more shade. That's really nice that you also like in one place, by the way. His generosity and his grace are relentless, determined, and will not be shaken. God gives good things. Build your life on his goodness. By the way, history shows, the early church's history up until they were able to map very 
you know, quite accurately as it expanded, exploded across the empires of the day, was that James's letter was overwhelmingly successful. Yes, there was the church at Laodicea in the, you know, 90 AD that was losing the plot. But you know, the emperors complained about these Christians. <laughs> they not only loved and cared for their own poor and vulnerable, they loved and cared for all the poor and vulnerable because they were captivated by a vision of a God who's unchangeably good and generous. And in this place of goodness, although many of them were still slaves, they were setting people free. Although many of them Though they were pressed, they were seeing people delivered because those who were low were learning to take pride in their exalted position. And they realized it doesn't depend on me having a great circumstance to change the world. It depends on me in believing in the steadfast, unrelenting, unchanging generosity and goodness sheer perfection of God. Why don't you stand with me? Let's have the worship team. Come, Holy Spirit. Just, just you pray that. Just pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't want to be unstable. I don't want to be double-minded. I don't want to doubt you. I want to be steadfast in the conviction that like an unmoving midday sun. You are generous and you are good. You are generous and you are good. Lord, you have ways of humbling the proud. So forgive us if we've been proud. Help us to see that you're the God who exalts the humble. So today we want to make ourselves low in the presence of the one who lifts up the humble. Lord, if we exalt ourselves, we'll never know what it is to call you the glory and the lifter of our heads. If we exalt ourselves, we'll never know 
what it is to call you our glory and the lifter of our heads. So today we say thank you for Jesus. Oh, thank you. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Well, we've heard testimonies of healing. We've heard words of encouragement from Hilda. Maybe if you're needing the ministry of the Lord right now, just raise your hands. Say, do what you need to do, God. Do what you need to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You see our hands. You see our hands. Oh, thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask the guys to sing because I don't know what to do next. And <laughs> we'll just see what God does and follow him. So we had a testimony of healing and we're in the presence of the Lord and if uh, your body needs fixing right now I don't know put your hand on the spot or yeah we just want to bless the presence and the ministry of the Lord so just wave at me if it's you if it's your neck put your hand on your neck if it's your back put your hand on your back if it's dodgy places put your hand on your stomach <laughs> 
come, Holy Spirit. Lord, you know, we've heard it again. Lord, just your presence. And Luke 5 said, people were touching Jesus because power was flowing out of him and healing them all. So Jesus, we thank you that you're present. And we ask that your touch would touch us even as we reach out for your touch to touch you. So just let your faith reach out. Let your faith reach out. Lord, I pray for backs. I pray for neck. Lord, I I, I pray for chronic uh, stress-related pain that's resulting in headaches that are rooted in the spine and, and are like messing with the neck. Is there someone with that? You, you're, you're having headaches, but it's actually not just your head. Okay, put your hand on it. It's, it's filled. Is there anyone else? I think there might be more. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We're wanting healing power to just set free. We want... <laughs> Well, people to feel the freedom of a new kind of life just flowing into them. Yeah, you can keep your mask on and stand at a discreet distance of one and a half meters and put your hand on their shoulder. We can't count. No one's brought a measuring tape. So just yeah, behave yourselves. But let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you that we can look to you. Look to you. I want to speak healing to this condition it's debilitating making work hard and lord you said we can trust you fully and you give good things good things only good things thank you healing is part of the good things the kingdom brings so we speak healing now we say to this pain lord if there's any tension or wounding or words that have come we want to cancel them in jesus name expectations if someone's put a yoke on you that you can't lift throw it onto Jesus and then snuggle up next to him let him put a yoke on you that he'll pull with you your shoulders are free in Jesus name Your neck is free from the old yoke in Jesus' name. Your thoughts are freed in Jesus' name. 